Thank you, Blake. Or Blake. Thank you, Jake. I'm so used to saying Blake. That is awesome, man. That is awesome to see just an interest and a passion for advancing the kingdom in the world. That's a wonderful thing. So appreciate you. Appreciate you a lot. Appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I shared my testimony with the youth this morning, and uh, uh, I was thinking about the the circuitous and curious road that my life has taken. Uh, uh, I thought about a lot of, of questions that that get posed to us. Some of them aren't that important, but there's a lot of crucial questions that you know we're faced with in life. Like I asked the kids, uh, the students back there, the you know the crucial question of of who they were. And and if you know me, when when I'm asking that question, I'm looking for a specific response. When I told them, you know, I asked them, you know, who they were, I wanted them to respond. I'm loved by God. Are any of those students around in here today or not? They might not be around here. I see one of them and I'm going to put her on the spot. But either way, uh, that's a crucial question. Who are you? And if we can respond with that sort of an idea that we are someone who's loved by God, it can reshape our lives. It can reshape our path through life. But we face a lot of crucial questions, a lot of questions through life. When we're little children, we're faced with the question of, you know, what do, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a common one. And little kids, that's an easy one. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a, uh, you know, you know, farmer. I don't know that anybody ever said that. <laughs> For me, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of something. <laughs> My earliest memory of somebody asking me that, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I knew exactly what I was going to be uh, when I grew up. Uh, The questions were easier when we were kids, but they, they become a little more nuanced, a little more thoughtful as we get older. Like it moves from what do you want to be when you grow up to what are you going to do with your life? And that takes a little more consideration. That takes a little more uh, thought that's compelling. Other questions can alter our lives completely. I remember being asked one time uh, in, a, in a specific environment, uh, I was asked the, the crucial question that happily I answered well because it changed my life for the better, but I was asked, will you, Rob, take this woman, Robbie, to be your wedded wife? And I answered well, and it, it's worked out for me uh, in all of these years. We're going to be reading about probably the most crucial question, at least in my opinion, uh, that could ever be posed to us in this life while we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've got a Bible and if you'd like to follow along, if you will go to Luke chapter 9, please. Last week we read the account of this amazing miracle Jesus did by multiplying the bread and the fish so that a crowd of over 5,000 people were able to eat and have leftovers as well. That miracle was a culmination of a long string of miracles that Luke had recorded, all of them meant to reveal Christ's authority. It showed Christ's authority over the natural world, over the supernatural world, over sickness and death. He multiplies food, showing his ability and authority to provide. And all of this was intended to get a question rolling around in our minds that the disciples actually posed after he calmed the storm on the sea, and that is, who is this guy? Like, who is this, this person that we're with? And that is the crucial question of Luke's gospel that he has now led us to. The section we're going to be covering is one of those pivotal moments of revelation in this narrative. And from it, we get this big picture and foundational view 
of Jesus as well as what it means for our lives uh, that are lived in service to Jesus. Our text today is going to provide an answer to three specific questions. Who is Jesus? How does he accomplish his mission? And what does he expect of us as he goes about this mission? So if you're there in Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 18. It says, One day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. And Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. Okay, so this account of Jesus' question about his identity is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. John's gospel is the only one that leaves it out. Luke's account is the only one that frames this question in the process of praying. Jesus has gotten together with his disciples and got away from the crowds to pray. But the result of this prayer is that Jesus asks this important question, who do people say that I am. Now we need to understand that he's not asking if he's popular or not. He's not fishing for likes on Facebook. He's not asking if he's trending on Twitter or something like that. He's asking how people are evaluating and understanding his ministry. How people are evaluating and understanding what it is that he's been up to in Galilee and the regions around there all this time. So they give a variety of the answers that they've heard. Some say, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Remember a little bit uh, back in this chapter, Herod was was posing that possibility, that this was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. It's funny the things that people are willing to believe when they don't understand something. The theory that he posed must have gotten some traction because the disciples are repeating it at that point. And if he's not John the Baptist, then possibly he's Elijah. Elijah was prophesied to come back in Malachi. Uh, Maybe you're one of the prophets of the old kingdom, come back from the dead. You know, somebody dead. We don't sure who you are, but somebody. Uh, All the opinions that they offer, though, hold Jesus in, in very high respect. And, you know, so they're explaining to him, listen, you know, the polling data has indicated that that we believe you're somebody special, uh, a spiritually important person, but but people were mostly undecided as to just how important Jesus was and exactly who he was. So then Jesus draws the circle in a little closer and he asks his disciples, well, what's your conversation been about me? Who do you think I am? Or more appropriately, he's saying, why are you here with me? What do you think is going on here in in this ministry that we're doing? So this is the crucial question that Luke has been guiding us toward. Everything in this narrative has been leading up to this moment, and everything that flows from this is going to flow from this answer here. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking. And the fact that he's asking his disciples means that basically the question rises up off the page to us asking us, who do you think I am? Who is Jesus to you? A lot of people have a lot of different views and ideas about who Jesus is, but each one of us has to determine who he is personally. And by that, I don't mean come up with some personal opinion about Jesus, but I mean each of us must personally decide if we'll believe what this ancient text reveals Jesus to be. Peter provides the answer that Luke's gospel has been steering us towards. Peter blurts out, you are the Messiah. 
which means, it's a Hebrew word, it means the anointed one, or we could say the anointed king, which is what they were expecting. It was a term used for the savior that they were expecting, the one who God was sending to, to, you know, to bring the long-awaited restoration and redemption of Israel, and then ultimately the world. The fulfillment of that long-ago promise that God made to Abraham, saying that through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is Jesus? According to this text, Jesus is the divine king who fulfills God's promise of salvation. Peter declares Jesus is the promised king who's going to save Israel and save the world. That's what Messiah, that's what Christ, Christos is the Greek version of Messiah. It means the same thing, the anointed one, or again, we could extrapolate that to mean the anointed king who's come to rule. And here's the thing, the the salvation that Peter was anticipating, the salvation uh, in the Jewish thinking and both then and now uh, meant an end to exile. Listen, nobody in the biblical narrative ever connected salvation with going to heaven when you die. Not that, that's, not that we're dismissing that, but that was not the main thrust or the idea behind salvation. For Peter, confessing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah meant that he believed that Jesus was the true king who he would loyally follow in his mission to make all things right on earth again. And making all things right again was at the center of Jewish thinking about salvation and the end of exile. Because for the Jewish people, they considered themselves still in a state of exile at that time, at the time of Jesus. Because even though they'd returned to their homeland, even though that they were in you know, the promised land of Israel, they were still under the control of Gentile nations. Had been ever since they got back there. First the Persians, then the Seleucids, then the Romans. But exile had actually taken on a bigger meaning as well. It had to do with the state of the world and the dominance of evil people, of things being unjust and basically not right in the world. So exile had to do with a longing for home, longing for the world the way it was meant to be, longing to to live in a world under God's rule and charge where there was peace uh, once again and provision. This is what was preloaded into to Peter's statement that you are the Messiah. You, Jesus, are the promised king. It'll be through you that God will set all things right again and I'll be reconciled with God as your subject. That's what he was saying. That is the confession that is zeroed in on in all three synoptic gospels. And it's this truth which for us as the church is our center of gravity a truth that the church has to return to again and again throughout her history, a truth that seems to get lost in the mix way too easily, remembering that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is being established and outworking in this world, that that Jesus is reconciling us to God and making all things new. That is the gospel message. That is what the gospel is all about. So we have to consider what that means in our lives right now. Because certainly there is the promise of eternal life attached to this. That promise has been made. But what does it mean for us right here, right now, today, in the lives that we live every day? What does it mean to your life and to my life that Jesus is king? What does that even mean to us? How does it affect how I live? How does it affect how I engage with this world that I'm placed in? To whom is my highest loyalty due? 
if Jesus is king. These are important issues that we all have to wrestle with because while we have a king, we also live in a world that has its own rulers and governments. Not only that, but we, like the disciples in our texts, have to to wrestle with how Jesus goes about ending this exile and setting things right again because exile and sin are inseparable issues. In order to be rescued from exile and return to God, our sin has to be forgiven and removed. And that was all part and parcel with the promises that God made to Israel through the prophets. One day I'll take your sins away. One day you'll be forgiven. One day you'll be restored. One day I'll set all things right. But it was all part and parcel. The sin issue had to be dealt with in order for exile to come to an end. And Jesus knew how that was going to be achieved which he explains in the next few verses. Verse 21, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He'll be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He'll be killed. But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Okay, this is awesome. So Peter Peter declares that Jesus is the one true king. And in his mind, as it would have been in our minds, had we been there in, in all of this, that meant that Jesus was going to rise up in violent opposition to the Roman uh, Empire and the corrupt leaders of Israel, rise up in opposition and you know storm the capital and all of that stuff. And Peter saw himself right there with Jesus, commanding armies and fighting Romans and then reclining on a throne when it's all over with, uh, you know, sipping from a goblet in this new kingdom. And so I can just imagine this. When they hear this from Jesus, yes, I am the Messiah, the disciples are beyond stoked at that moment. This is awesome, man. They're, they're filled with new excitement and energy. Jesus is the Messiah. Yay! God is going to bring triumph. Yay! He says he's going to be captured by his enemies and killed. Yay! Wait, what? Uh, that would be like the captain of a football team gathering his team together around him uh, on the day of the big game and saying, okay, you guys, we are going to go out there and we are going to give up touchdown after touchdown and we will not score one point until we win this game. Are you sure you understand how this game works? How did you get to be captain anyway? But see, this is the, this is the thing. This is, this is the troubling and even unimaginable way in which King Jesus goes about establishing his kingdom. This cross that he forecasts right here is the rub in the whole thing. It's what they had great difficulty understanding before the resurrection, and it's what we still struggle with all through church history right up into this day. Jesus revealed to us that God's way of overcoming this world would be vastly different from the way in which the kingdoms of this world advance. That Jesus as king overcomes this world through sacrificial love. There's no indication that his disciples even heard him talk about being raised on the third day. They just heard the first part. And we know from Matthew and Mark, Mark's account of this, they were incredulous, trying to pull Jesus aside, explain to him how the world works, stuff like that. Jesus has been in the process of reinterpreting Or it would probably be better to say that he's been in the process of revealing what being Messiah was really all about, what it really meant, and what following Jesus was going to entail for his disciples. Jesus, later on in the gospel narrative, in John's gospel, Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's on trial, 
and, and they've accused him of being a king, which he couldn't be when Caesar was in control. And, and when Jesus answers, when Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus affirms it. He says, well, you're saying that, but my kingdom is his words. My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would rise up and fight for me. And when Jesus is saying that, he, that his kingdom isn't of this world, he's not saying that my kingdom is far away out in space or in the clouds somewhere or something like that. He meant that his kingdom didn't operate the way the kingdoms of this world operate. There's a, there's a sensibility and a common sense for how a kingdom is going to go out and advance and conquer that runs congruently with how the kingdom of God operates. No, Jesus reveals a victory that comes through this strange new power, the power of sacrificial love, a self-giving love that wins its victory, not through coercion, but through the unrelenting forgiveness and a love that refuses to be contained. A love unleashed in this world by Jesus. That is the power that overcomes this world. That is the power that Jesus reveals. And it calls into question then our own modern American understanding of Jesus. In ancient Israel, Jesus' disciples, well, pretty much everyone, man, they wanted a power-wielding God as king. A God who's, you know, going to heal our illnesses. We saw that. A God who gives us prosperity, who grants us security, who urges our favorite teams on to victory, who keeps our political uh, parties in power and generally keeps us happy and healthy and comfortable being Christians in whatever place we're in. But that is not what Jesus describes nor what Jesus offers. Instead, Jesus shows us a God king who approaches a broken world not with blasts of rage, but with sacrificial love. A God who meets us in vulnerability and suffering and loss. A God who meets us in those moments when we really need God. When all we've worked for and hoped for and strains for falls apart and we realize that we are very fragile human beings and incapable of saving ourselves and desperately in need of a God who would meet us right where we are in order to rescue us. Jesus as Messiah reveals this unthinkable love of God and it shows up where we would least expect God to be in those marginalized places, in, in Baltimore, in places where the murder rate is over 300 all the time. The God who shows up in the midst of the brokenness, not to wipe it away in anger, but to express his great love for his precious human race. Which means that we don't get the king we want, but we get the king we so desperately need. A God who doesn't add to the chaos and the suffering, but who instead takes it all to himself on that cross and transforms it into a new life. But not only is this his way, that, that's not, it's not just the king's way of conquering evil. It's the pathway he's outlined for us as well. So we'll keep reading. And let me just warn you that this gets way worse. Uh, verse 23 Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, so this is something we actually have to perk up and listen to. Okay, what? 
If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I'll tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. We'll get to that in just a second. But Jesus turns, it says, to the crowds, which is interesting because he had gotten away uh, by himself. So it tells us that the people found him once again and are all crowding in on him. And you know what? I think Jesus is onto something. If you want to stunt church growth, do like Jesus did and preach about the cross. Uh, not his cross, but our cross, because that's disconcerting. Because if it's not bad enough that Jesus is predicting his own death, he then explains to his disciples that they, meaning we, have a cross that we have to pick up as well in following him. So he's telling us that to follow Jesus as king, we have to follow his path, his path of sacrificial love. And he uses this stunning imagery of, of a cross, of taking up a cross. I can't even imagine what must have gone through the minds of those who were listening to him at that point. Because listen, for us, after all this time, the cross has become sanitized. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's romanticized. We understand it in light of what Jesus did as a symbol of God's love. And rightly so. It does become a symbol of God's love. But to those hearing him say those words that day, that is not what they heard. Not at all. They would have imagined something pretty, pretty spectacular, but not in a good way. I don't think any one of them would have ever imagined that Jesus was just telling them to endure a grouchy boss or put up with a, you know, an ingrown toenail, which is what we call our cross to bear so oftentimes. No, to them, the cross was an instrument of death. That was Rome's ad campaign. That was their PR process. Listen, hey, we're Rome. We came here to bring you roads and aqueducts and all kinds of cool stuff. But we have this for you, this cross, if you get out of line or or pose any sort of uh, opposition to what it is that we're doing. We'll put you here for all to see. The cross was a horrifying thing. In civilized, cultured society in Rome, they wouldn't even use that term. They wouldn't even say the word. The word crucifixion was sort of like a cuss word to them in that society. It was such a horrible thing. Jesus is using it here, applying it to his followers. And it conjured up images of being marched through the streets on the way to some torturous execution. Those were the images that his followers grew up with. They probably even knew people who had suffered that fate. There was a lot of crucifixions happening in Palestine at that time. This was a graphic image that Jesus is employing here. And he's telling us that to follow him, that is to be his community of people gathered around the truth that he is king. That's what the church is. Then we have to advance his kingdom the same way he did. This great paradox that Jesus presents us in the cross, the gaining of life by losing our life. But it tells us something about our mission as the church. 
and, and our tactics as the church. It's a far cry from the tactics of this world. If we're going to follow him, if we're going to follow his ways, then it means we have to follow his ways of sacrificial love, of laying down our lives as a means of gaining them. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we die to the methodology of this world, that we release our own self-will and all of our attempts at trying to save ourselves and to find our lives reshaped in the mold of Jesus, who the one who, who loves sacrificially, the one who came to serve and not be served, the one who blessed those who cursed him and forgave those who killed him. And we might stagger back at this and <laughs> at this, you know, this calling and say, well, you know, why would I do this? What do I get out of this? Well, how, how could that possibly benefit me to, to, to do what you're saying here, Jesus? But as he puts it, we could gain the whole world and end up losing our soul. So I guess each of us has to decide what's worth it. What's more important in all of this? This is a turning point in the story, in the gospel narrative. It's a pivotal moment where things take on a new shape. Here it becomes clear that following Jesus is not just a few minor adjustments to our normal lives. It's a radical call to commitment no matter the cost. It's a commitment to experience and then express the divine sacrificial love of God into this world. Ultimately, it's a contrast of systems. He's suggesting that the life that's been packaged and sold to us from the time we came into this world isn't real life at all. And that we need to die to those illusions of what would satisfy or bring fulfillment in our lives and be born into the real and abundant life that God intended for us all along. Life the way he intended it to be. And here's the thing, we, we tend to think that life is something that you go out and get or earn or buy. We're told that life is about achieving our own self-will. Life is what you make it. But it turns out life is a lot like love. And it can't be won or earned or bought. It can only be given away. And the more we give it away, the more we have in fact, I've learned and I observed over and over again in this life, it's only when we love others that we most understand what real love is. And in the same way, only when we give away our lives for the sake of others in service to our King that we experience real life, that sense of wholeness and meaning and purpose that the world could never give us. Somehow, in God's creative power and thinking about how to meet the needs of others, our own deepest needs get met. And we even know that from a scientific perspective. We know that we as human beings, we're wired that way. There's dopamine that gets released into our systems when we live in altruistic ways. We're wired to live and serve and care about our fellow human beings. This is the very key to God's kingdom and how it is that we as the church were meant to live it out in the world. The world system, it's always been a siren song for us as followers of Jesus. 
It's always been out there calling to us, calling out that if we could accumulate more, get more stuff, retain more power, more influence, well, then we'd have the good life that we've all been chasing after. But Jesus puts all of that on a scale with our soul, which is the totality of our life. And he says that all of that stuff weighs nothing in comparison to what we could be. Paul later on says that everything that he achieved and gained, he counted as dung compared to the glorious pursuit of God's love. To follow Jesus is to take the way of the cross, to love sacrificially, and in that, to find real life. Now the chapter finishes off with this tease about the glory to come. Jesus references the Son of Man, which is taking us back to Daniel 7. And so he's clearly making that point. I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to be coming in glory just like Daniel prophesied there. But then he also hints at this idea that somebody here is actually going to see what that glorious kingdom looks like. And it's, it's something that leads up to the next chapter. But what he's doing is he's putting that big picture out there again. Why do we do this? Why would we endure this sort of thing? Why would we choose to live a life that's self-sacrificial in loving others? Because of the glory that's yet to be revealed. And that doesn't just mean the sweet by and by, but the glory that's formed in our own character, here and now, to actually be in life and be satisfied in life, knowing that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And it does include an unending life when God puts all things right. That's part of the promise. That's, that's the cherry on top of the whole thing. But that's where we still have to come back and we've got to ask those questions of ourselves and they're not easy questions. They're not. It would be unreasonable for us to say that it's an easy question. It's a hard question that all of us has to pose to ourselves. What's more important to me? What's more important to us? The trinkets and the affirmations, the blue thumbs up or the little hearts we can get somewhere along the line that we gather up here in this broken world or wholeness in life that doesn't have dependence on any of that stuff. Imagine living that kind of life unselfconsciously, a life between me and God. And this sort of all brings us back around full circle where Jesus began by asking who they thought he was, asking in essence why they were with him. And it's a good question to pose to ourselves. Why am I here? Why am I here with the Christian tribe? Why do I come to church? What am I expecting? What do I really believe about Jesus? How far am I willing to go? in following his example of expressing sacrificial love into this world. And where do I think this is all going? What are my expectations in return? I don't have those answers for you. Those are ones you come up with on your own. But to identify with the church means that we embrace the claim that Jesus is the one true king. His victory comes through sacrificial love and our mission, his expectation of us, is to advance that same love into the world where we've been placed. As we follow Jesus, things will change. We will change. Our relationships 
will change the world that we live in will change sometimes for the better sometimes for the worse change means losing things in our lives the way they were but if we've caught jesus's vision for how god is redeeming the world we know that what we gain is far greater than anything else that we may lose in fact we find that what we usually lose is mostly chains so let's be the gathering of the church i know it's kind of a heavy message but it's an important one. Let's be the gathering of the church. Let's embrace Jesus' rule, not only over our lives, but over this world, and to see the world from the perspective of his love for it. Let's take his hand, let's take his cross, and emulate that kind of love. Let's take up this challenge to change the world through his love by calling others into reconciliation with God. Right on? All right, very cool. Uh, so before we, before we break up and, and uh, close here, I, I want to um, have us pray real quick. John Kittler came to me before the service with kind of an emergency situation. A dear friend of his who was instrumental in him getting on this path of faith. His daughter is in labor and it's a crisis situation. And so we need to pray. And John, remind me of her name again. Sarah. Sarah. So let's join our hearts together. And Father, we bring Sarah before your throne right now. And we pray for grace to the mother and child. And we ask you, Lord God, to surround them with your love and your care. Be with them right now. And Father, we pray that you by your spirit will intervene and bring about a good conclusion to this story. But we put it in your hands, Lord, and we know in your hands everything is safe. We know we can't always dictate the outcome of any situation, but we know that your grace is always present and ready to help and to heal and to comfort. So, Father, intervene and bring comfort. Intervene and bring healing. Intervene and bring this child safely into the world. And we ask that this morning, Lord, as these things are unfolding. We bring Sarah before your throne. Hear our prayers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, uh, all right, why don't you stand with us? We're going to close with a song, and then uh, we'll throw some things around. And then we'll...